Section 8 of the History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1 by Livy, translated by William Masvin Roberts, Book 2, Chapters 1 to 7. Book 2, The Early Years of the Republic. Chapter 1, The New Settlement. It is of a Rome henceforth free that I am to write the history her civil administration and the conduct of her wars, her annually elected magistrates, the authority of her laws supreme over all her citizens. The tyranny of the last king made this liberty all the more welcome, for such had been the rule of the former kings that they might not undeservedly be counted as founders of parts, at all events, of the city, for the additions they made were required as abodes for the increased population which they themselves had augmented. There is no question that the Brutus who won such glory through the expulsion of Superbus would have inflicted the gravest injury on the state had he wrested the sovereignty from any of the former kings, through desire of a liberty for which the people were not ripe. What would have been the result if that horde of shepherds and immigrants, fugitives from their own cities, who had secured liberty, or at all events impunity, in the shelter of an inviolable sanctuary, if, I say, they had been freed from the restraining power of kings and agitated by the tribunican storms, had begun to foment quarrels with the patricians in a city where they were aliens before sufficient time had elapsed for either family ties or a growing love for the very soil to effect a union of hearts. The infant state would have been torn to pieces by internal dissension. As it was, however, the moderate and tranquilizing authority of the kings had so fostered it that it was at last able to bring forth their fair fruits of liberty in the maturity of its strength. But the origin of liberty may be referred to this time rather because the consular authority was limited to one year than because there was any weakening of the authority which the kings had possessed. The first consuls retained all the old jurisdiction and insignia of office. Only one, however, had the fasces to prevent the fear which might have been inspired by the sight of both those dread symbols. Through the concession of his colleague, Brutus had them first, and he was not less zealous in guarding the public liberty than he had been in achieving it. His first act was to secure the people, who were now jealous of their newly recovered liberty, from being influenced by any entreaties or bribes from the king. He therefore made them take an oath that they would not suffer any man to reign in Rome. The Senate had been thinned by the murderous cruelty of Tarquin, and Brutus's next care was to strengthen its influence by selecting some of the leading men of equestrian rank to fill the vacancies. By this means he brought it up to the old number of 300. The new members were known as conscripti, the old ones retained their designation of patres. This measure had a wonderful effect in promoting harmony in the state and bringing the patricians and plebeians together. Chapter 2. He next gave his attention to the affairs of religion. Certain public functions had hitherto been executed by the kings in person, with the view of supplying their place a, quote, king for sacrifices, unquote, was created, and lest he should become king in anything more than name and so threaten that liberty which was their first care, his office was made subordinate to the Pontifex Maximus. I think that they went to unreasonable lengths in devising safeguards for their liberty, in all, even the smallest points. The second consul, Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus, bore an unpopular name. This was his sole offense, and men said that the Tarquins had been too long in power. They began with Priscus, then Servius Tullius reigned, and Superbus Tarquinius, who even after this interruption had not lost sight of the throne which another filled, regained it by crime and violence as the hereditary possession of his house. And now that he was expelled, their power was being wheeled by Colatinus. The Tarquins did not know how to live in a private station. The very name was a danger to liberty. 
What were at first whispered hints became the common talk of the city, and as the people were becoming suspicious and alarmed, Brutus summoned an assembly. He first of all rehearsed the people's oath that they would suffer no man to reign or to live in Rome by whom the public liberty might be imperiled. This was to be guarded with the utmost care. No means of doing so were to be neglected. Personal regard made him reluctant to speak, nor would he have spoken had not his affection for the commonwealth compelled him. The Roman people did consider that their freedom was not yet fully won. The royal race, the royal name was still there, not only amongst the citizens but in the government. In that fact lay an injury, an obstacle to full liberty. Turning to his brother consul, quote, These apprehensions it is for you, Lucius Tarquinius, to banish of your own free will. We have not forgotten, I assure you, that you expelled the king's family. Complete your good work, remove their very name. Your fellow citizens will, on my authority, not only hand over your property, but if you need anything, they will add to it with lavish generosity. Go, as our friend, relieve the commonwealth from a perhaps groundless fear. Men are persuaded that only with the family will the tyranny of the Tarquins depart." Unquote. At first the consul was stuck dumb with astonishment at this extraordinary request. Then, when he was beginning to speak, the foremost men in the commonwealth gathered round him and repeatedly urged the same plea, but with little success. It was not till Spurius Lucretius, his superior in age and rank, and also his father-in-law, began to use every method of entreaty and persuasion that he yielded to the universal wish. The consul, fearing lest after his year of office had expired and he returned to private life, the same demand should be made upon him, accompanied with loss of property and the ignominy of banishment, formally laid down the consulship, and after transferring all his effects to Lanovium, withdrew from the state. A decree of the Senate empowered Brutus to propose to the people a measure, exiling all the members of the House of Tarquin. He conducted the election of a new consul, and the centuries elected his colleague Publius Valerius, who had acted with him in the expulsion of the royal family. Chapter 3. A Conspiracy to Restore the Tarquins Though no one doubted that war with the Tarquins was imminent, it did not come as soon as was universally expected. What was not expected, however, was that through intrigue and treachery the new one liberty was almost lost. There were some young men of high birth in Rome who during the late reign had done pretty much what they pleased, and being boon companions to the young Tarquins were accustomed to live in royal fashion. Now that all were equal before the law, they missed their former license and complained that the liberty which others enjoyed had become slavery for them. As long as there was a king, there was a person from whom they could get what they wanted, whether lawful or not. There was room for personal influence and kindness. He could show severity or indulgence, could discriminate between his friends and enemies. But the law was a thing, deaf and inexorable, more favorable to the weak than to the powerful, showing no indulgence or forgiveness to those who transgressed. Human nature being what it was, it was a dangerous plan to trust solely to one's innocence. When they had worked themselves into a state of disaffection, envoys from the royal family arrived, bringing a demand for the restoration of their property without any allusion to their possible return. An audience was granted them by the Senate, and the matter was discussed for some days. Fears were expressed that the non-surrender would be taken as a pretext for war, while if surrendered it might provide the means of war. The envoys, meantime, were engaged on another task. Whilst ostensibly seeking only the surrender of the property, they were secretly hatching schemes for regaining the crown. Whilst canvassing the young nobility in favor of their apparent object, they sounded them as to their other proposals. In meeting with a favorable reception, they brought letters addressed to them by the Tarquins and discussed plans for admitting them secretly at night into the city. Chapter 4. 
The project was at first entrusted to the brothers Vitelli and Aquilae. The sister of the Vitelli was married to the consul Brutus, and there were grown-up children from this marriage, Titus and Tiberius. Their uncles took them into the conspiracy. There were others besides whose names have been lost. In the meantime, the opinion that the property ought to be restored was adopted by the majority of the Senate, and this enabled the envoys to prolong their stay, as the consuls required time to provide vehicles for conveying the goods. They employed their time in consultations with the conspirators, and they insisted on getting a letter which they were to give to the Tarquins, for without such a guarantee, they argued, how could they be sure that their envoys had not brought back empty promises in a matter of such vast importance? A letter was accordingly given as a pledge of good faith, and this it was that led to the discovery of the plot. The day previous to the departure of the envoys, they happened to be dining at the house of the Vitelli. After all, who were not in the secret had left, the conspirators discussed many details respecting their projected treason, which were overheard by one of the slaves, who had previously suspected that something was afoot, but was waiting for the moment when the letter should be given, as its seizure would be a complete proof of the plot. When he found that it had been given, he disclosed the affair to the consuls. They at once proceeded to arrest the envoys and the conspirators, and crush the whole plot without exciting any alarm. Their first care was to secure the letter before it was destroyed. The traitors were forthwith thrown into prison. There was some hesitation in dealing with the envoys, and although they had evidently been guilty of a hostile act, the rights of international law were accorded them. Chapter 5 The question of the restoration of the property was referred anew to the Senate, who, yielding to their feelings of resentment, prohibited its restoration and forbade its being brought into the treasury. It was given as plunder to the plebs that their share in this spoliation might destroy forever any prospect of peaceable relations with the Tarquins. The land of the Tarquins, which lay between the city and the Tiber, was henceforth sacred to Mars and known as the Compass Martius. There happened, it is said, to be a crop of corn there which was ripe for the harvest, and as it would have been sacrilege to consume what was growing on the Compass, a large body of men were sent to cut it. They carried it, straw and all, in baskets to the Tiber and threw it into the river. It was the height of the summer, and the stream was low, consequently the corn stuck in the shallows, and heaps of it were covered with mud. Gradually, as the debris which the river brought down collected there, an island was formed. I believe that it was subsequently raised and strengthened, so that the surface might be high enough above the water and firm enough to carry temples and colonnades. After the royal property had been disposed of, the traders were sentenced and executed. Their punishment created a great sensation owing to the fact that the consular office imposed upon a father the duty of inflicting punishment on his own children. He who ought not to have witnessed it was destined to be the one to see it duly carried out. Youths belonging to the noblest families were standing tied to the post, but all eyes were turned to the consul's children. The others were unnoticed. Men did not grieve more for their punishment than for the crime which had incurred it. That they should have conceived the idea, in that year above all, of betraying to one who had been a ruthless tyrant and was now an exile and an enemy, a newly liberated country, their father, who had liberated it, the consulship which had originated in the Junian house, the senate, the plebs, all that Rome possessed of human or divine. The consuls took their seats, the lictors were told off to inflict the penalty. They scourged their bare backs with rods and then beheaded them. During the whole time, the father's countenance betrayed his feelings. But the father's stern resolution was still more apparent as he superintended the public execution. After the guilty had paid the penalty, a notable example of a different nature was provided to act as a deterrent of crime. The informer was assigned a sum of money from the treasury and he was given his liberty and the rights of citizenship. 
He is said to have been the first to be made free by the Vindicta. Some suppose this designation to have been derived from him, his name being Vindicius. After him, it was the rule that those who were made free in this way were considered to be admitted to the citizenship. Chapter 6. War with Tarquin, Death of Brutus A detailed report of these matters reached Tarquin. He was not only furious at the failure of plans from which he had hoped so much, but he was filled with rage at finding the way blocked against secret intrigues, and consequently determined upon open war. He visited the cities of Etruria and appealed for help. In particular, he implored the people of the Vii and Tarquini not to allow one to perish before their eyes who was of the same blood with them, and from being a powerful monarch was now, with his children, homeless and destitute. Others, he said, had been invited from abroad to reign in Rome. He, the king, whilst extending the rule of Rome by a successful war, had been driven out by the infamous conspiracy of his nearest kinsmen. They had no single person amongst them deemed worthy to reign, so they had distributed the kingly authority amongst themselves and had given his property as plunder to the people that all might be involved in the crime. He wanted to recover his country and his throne and punish his ungrateful subjects. The Veientines must help him and furnish him with resources. They must set about avenging their own wrongs also, their legions so often cut to pieces, their territory torn from them. This appeal decided the Veientines. They one and all loudly demanded that their former humiliations should be wiped out and their losses made good, now that they had a Roman to lead them. The people of the Tarquini were won over by the name and nationality of the exile. They were proud of having a countryman as king in Rome. So two armies from these cities followed Tarquin to recover his crown and chastise the Romans. When they had entered the Roman territory, the consuls advanced against them. Valerius, with the infantry and phalanx formation, Brutus, reconnoitering in advance with the cavalry. Similarly, the enemy's cavalry was in front of his main body, Arons Tarquin, the king's son, in command. The king himself followed with the legionaries. While still at a distance, Arons distinguished the consul by his escort of lictors. As they drew nearer, he clearly recognized Brutus by his features, and in a transport of rage exclaimed, quote, That is the man who drove us from our country. See him proudly advancing, adorned with our insignia. Ye gods, avengers of kings, aid me. Unquote. With these words, he dug spurs into the horse and rode straight to the consul. Brutus saw that he was making for him. It was a point of honor in those days for the leaders to engage in single combat, so we eagerly accepted the challenge, and they charged with such fury, neither of them thinking of protecting himself, if only he could wound his foe, that each drove his spear at the same moment through the other's shield, and they fell dying from their horses, with spears sticking in them. The rest of the cavalry at once engaged, and not long after the infantry came up, the battle raged with varying fortune, the two armies being fairly matched. The right wing of each was victorious, the left defeated. The Vientes, accustomed to defeat at the hands of the Romans, were scattered in flight, but the Tarquinians, a new foe, not only held their ground, but forced the Romans to give way. Chapter 7 After the battle had gone in this way, so great a panic seized Tarquin and the Etruscans, that the two armies of Vi and Tarquini, on the approach of night, despairing of success, left the field and departed for their homes. The story of the battle was enriched by marvels. In the silence of the next night, a great voice is said to have come from the forest of Arcia, believed to be the voice of Silvanus, which spoke thus, quote, The fallen of the Tuscae are one more than those of their foe, the Roman is conqueror, unquote. At all events, the Romans left the field as victors. The Etruscans regarded themselves as vanquished, for when daylight appeared, not a single enemy was in sight. Publius Valerius, the consul, collected the spoils and returned in triumph to Rome. 
He celebrated his colleagues' obsequies with all the pomp possible in those days. But far greater honor was done to the dead by the universal mourning, which was rendered specially noteworthy by the fact that the matrons were a whole year in mourning for him because he had been such a determined avenger violated chastity. Growing Popularity of Valerius After this, the surviving consul, who had been in such favor with the multitude, found himself, such is its fickleness, not only unpopular, but an object of suspicion, and that of a very grave character. It was rumored that he was aiming at monarchy, for he had held no election to fill Brutus's place, and he was building a house on the top of the Velia, an impregnable fortress was being constructed on that high and strong position. The consul felt hurt at finding these rumors so widely believed and summoned the people to an assembly. As he entered, the fasces were lowered, to the great delight of the multitude who understood that it was to them that they were lowered as an open avowal that the dignity and might of the people were greater than those of the consul. Then, after securing silence, he began to eulogize the good fortune of his colleague who had met his death as a liberator of his country, possessing the highest honor it could bestow, fighting for the commonwealth whilst his glory was as yet undimmed by jealousy and distrust. Whereas he himself had outlived his glory and had fallen on days of suspicion and opprobrium, from being a liberator of his country, he had sunk to the level of the Aquilae and the Vitelli. Will you, he cried, never deem any man's merit so assured that it cannot be tainted by suspicion? Am I, the most determined foe to kings, to dread the suspicion of desiring to be one myself? Even if I were dwelling on the citadel on the capital, am I to believe it possible that I should be feared by my fellow citizens? Does my reputation amongst you hang on so slight a thread? Does your confidence rest upon such a weak foundation that it is of greater moment where I am than who I am? The house of Publius Valerius shall be no check upon your freedom. Your Velia shall be safe. I will not only move my house to level ground, but I will move it to the bottom of the hill that you may dwell above the citizen whom you suspect. Let those dwell on the Velia who are regarded as truer friends of liberty than Publius Valerius. All the materials were forthwith carried below the Velia, and his house was built at the very bottom of the hill where now stands the temple of Vika Pota. End of section 8